Enjoying this Sports Pro podcast? Well, we're also the sports industry leader in print, digital, and events. Head to sportspromedia.com for the latest features, news, and interviews from the business of sport. Help yourself to a subscription to our acclaimed magazine and find out about our unmissable conferences before anyone else. Get inside the industry with Sports Pro. Hi, everyone, and welcome once again to the Sports Pro podcast. My name is Owen Connolly. I'm the editor at large at Sports Pro. Great to be back with you. Uh, athletics in Qatar and uh, women's sport on the agenda today. A little bit later on, we're going to be hearing from Claire Connor, the Managing Director for Women's Cricket at the ECB, about a new five-year project for women's and girls' cricket. Uh, before that, I'm going to be discussing the World Athletics Championships with Rob Harris, who was out in Doha last week in his capacity as Global Sports Correspondent for the AP. Uh, a couple of parish notices first and foremost. There is a welter of sports broadcast industry coverage on sportspromedia.com just now. Uh, more to come in the next few weeks. All of it coming off the back of issue 107 of Sports Pro Magazine, uh, which is a very fine edition indeed. Uh, that's all kicked off with my interview with the Zone Executive Chairman John Skipper, uh, but there is more to follow. Uh, and on the subject of digital broadcasting, we are still a few weeks out from the Sports Pro OTT Summit in Madrid. That's taking place from the 19th to the 21st of November. SportsPro-OTT.com for all the details. Very much hope to see you there. And a big new entry for your diary. The 19th and 20th of February 2020, we'll see the first ever Sports Pro OTT Summit USA. That's going to be taking place in Atlanta. We've got an official launch due very soon. Uh, needless to say, all going to be pretty exciting. So do keep an eye on sportspro-ottusa.com uh, for more details. Anyway, on with this week's podcast. And we'll be starting with last week's much-talked-about World Athletics Championships, the latest piece of Qatar's major event hosting strategy. Uh, lots to mull over from Doha, uh, from the empty seats in the Khalifa International Stadium to the implications for other event organisers and the country's international reputation. Uh, and of course, it was an eventful week as well for the newly renamed World Athletics, which has been grappling with another doping scandal, uh, this time involving a ban for the distance running coach Alberto Salazar, uh, whose former charges include Mo Farah, and Sifan Hassan, and who previously headed up the Nike Oregon project. Uh, that's all come at a time when the sport has been dealing with questions of its own relevance in a highly competitive landscape. Uh, we got onto all of that with Rob. Lots to consider. Let's take a listen. Rob Harris, Global Sports Correspondent at the AP. Welcome back to the Sports Pro Podcast. Good to join you again. Uh, Rob, you were in Doha for about a week uh, around the World Athletics Championships and also took in some of the other sites of the Qatar Sports Project. First of all, what were your impressions of, of the World Championships? I suppose you've got to look at it on two levels. One is, where is athletics as a sport and how was Qatar in hosting the event? I mean, the IWF will look to the success of how many records they broke and the number of nationalities winning uh, gold and they will see that as a success 
the overriding image will be of those empty seats and sessions that weren't filled mm. and the struggle to attract interest. But then, which would be fascinating to see if there are metrics on it, just the global buzz around the event. What sort of um, attraction was there internationally? I mean, Sebco was uh, responding to one critical question on Sunday in the closing press conference to a Swedish journalist claiming that his broadcaster in Sweden has had um, high audience figures uh, on television. So, yeah, I mean, assessing it on that level in terms of the wider interest versus on the ground where clearly there was not the um, constant passionate fan base uh, there throughout the 10 days of competition. Yeah, I mean, obviously it's kind of stark contrast to, to London a couple of years ago, but in terms of the, the ticket sales specifically, and, and, you know, that was particularly in the early days of the of the event, it could not have been clearer on, on TV pictures. But what was the feeling like in the city? Did you did you get the sense that there was a major event going on? No, I mean, you could go into whether the sports bars, which are obviously mainly aimed at outsiders, and it would be football on the television screens. You'd go into cafes, and there was no real sense the world championships are on again it was probably more likely to be football so while you would see signage in and around the stadium area and on the corniche by the water where the marathon was run there wasn't some mass uh, blitz of uh, publicity or branding for the championship across the uh, um, city yeah and what was your impression about where did the fault lie with that was it was there an issue with the organizers were you able to get to the bottom really of of why that happened, why there'd been a kind of lack of demand, a lack of excitement around the event. I mean, you'd have conversations with uh, people in Doha, and particularly what they are often referred to as the migrant worker population. Obviously, there's heavy uh, reliance on workers from Kenya, from India, who are in the country. And obviously, particularly from Kenya, there's big um, back, backing and support for trekking field. And, you know, you would have conversations, but the ticket's quite expensive. And they were sort of starting around, um, it cost almost about £15 as a minimum for a ticket, which is pretty expensive. I and mean, even if in some um, Western European countries, you'd be, you'd be potentially struggling to fill the venues at that. So probably the price point is one. And particularly for the negative reputational fallout for Qatar and the IWAF, you have to wonder why they didn't aim at maybe a lower price point. I mean, the danger then is, of course, if you set it too low and people buy tickets that they then feel no real obligation to use, then you end up with empty seats either way. I mean, you saw that obviously women's football um, in the WSL when Chelsea gave tickets away for their first game of the season against Tottenham and they they sold them up, they distributed them all, 40,000, but then 24,000 while still a healthy crowd, um, that, that was their attendance. So that's always then the debate over how you price the tickets. Uh, so, and then, of course, some locals were going into some sessions and then leaving because it was quite late uh, to align themselves with some TV markets, so the IAAF said. And what the organisers tried to do was they said once people left to repopulate those seats, just, um, there was no right of return to the uh, seats. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's some particular challenges as well because there's no morning session and evening session you would get in other countries as well when the championships have been held. So they're sort of combining it into longer yeah. sessions. So all sorts of... Um, some unique challenges, some that sort of perhaps talk about the sport itself. Yeah, I mean, some of that, of course, athletics perhaps not feeling that it had the option to push any deeper into um, into the Qatari winter, which is 
what will happen with the World Cup because it would be so disruptive to the competitive cycle. What, what were some of the conversations that you had around the decision on World Athletics part, as they as they like to be known now, about that decision to take the event to Qatar? Yeah, I mean, obviously the process is still mined in investigations. The French prosecutors are still looking into the decision, the bidding process uh, involving uh, Qatar and the bid books at the time promising sellouts and full stadiums. And obviously it shows just how bids can offer things that there's no need to necessarily deliver on later down the line. I mean, I fully um, believe and see how you do need to share these events all around the world to attempt to take it the sport to new audiences. The question is how much you continue, you, you also have to sort of look at the crowds you can get them. And Formula One obviously have the same challenges. Formula One obviously, you know, just go for the highest bidder for the event and you don't have that same sort of passionate fan base that you might get at a Silverstone or Monza. Um, but um, and obviously the local organisers are blaming the regional diplomatic crisis. Obviously, you couldn't just fly in directly from Dubai or from uh, Riyadh. But we do have to remember as well that athletics, like the Olympics, does not get the tens of thousands of visiting fans that a a football World Cup and then even a, a rugby World Cup does. So it's mm. not you know it does heavily rely on the local population. Of, of course, but uh, you know at the same time as you say, they, there were there were promises made about sellout crowds and uh, and of course Doha is a regular host of, of Diamond League athletics. Where's the fracture been in terms of expectations and, and reality? Where where is it where has there been a problem in, in delivering these ticket sales? Because it's not unique to athletics either in terms of world championships going to Qatar. Um, you know, there has been a problem in, in filling venues in the past. Yeah, I mean they've had it, you know, they've had the gymnastic world championships and um, beach volleyball and um, you know it's getting that sort of culture of fandom but then I went to the Asian Champions League semi-final last week between Al Sadd and Al Hilal and that did largely fill out the 15,000 seat stadium there's a lot of locals who were there and clearly um, passionate for the game so you know they're certainly turning out for that and that was a lot of encouragement for the World Cup as well and, and maybe as Katov have said they will do you know, they'll learn the lessons from uh, this event and particularly with an eye on 2022 and it's obviously very different the fact you have a lot of fans coming in that they'll hope for 2022 and because of the nature of the World Cup assuming the traffic isn't as bad as it was over the last couple of weeks and the roads are all complete then you can actually be able to go to more than one game a day. What What are some of the lessons I mean obviously the issues surrounding Qatar could, could keep us occupied for quite a long time and, and not all of them fit into this category when you think about you know, it's international reputation and workers' rights and, and the, the many uh, the many issues that have sprung up in the last few years. Let's restrict it specifically to to kind of ticketing and, and embracing a kind of, uh, uh, you know, embracing the atmosphere around these events. What are some of the lessons that can be applied by the local organisers for, for the 2022 World Cup? Yeah, I mean, obviously they will be hoping to um, attract more fans than the athletics did and... Uh, the uh, the nature of the tournament is obviously very different. There's a lot more visiting fans to start with who fill stadiums at any football event, and the World Cup's just a bigger event. Football is obviously far bigger than mm-hmm. athletics, which is going through even bigger issues about relevance and um, its audience. And do you think Qatar learns from the uh, negativity that has, the empty seats have garnered by actually doing things to to ensure the local population fills the uh, the stadiums in 2022? 
Yeah, and it, it, given everything else that's gone on around, you know, given all the other kind of reputational stuff that that's come with with taking the World Cup to Qatar, do you sense any any kind of foreboding about what we've seen in the last week from from FIFA from uh, who obviously have the Club World Cup as well, going there before the World Cup starts. I mean, FIFA are actually in town over the last week in Qatar, going around venues and uh, also checking out facilities. Um, just uh, you know, standard things, even like TV studios and and the light checking. So they really are on top of the venues themselves as uh, their management managers. A lot of people obviously know just how adept FIFA are uh, put on the World Cup, whatever local difficulties that they might encounter but um yeah i mean it, you know it's it's a very different tournament obviously because of the uh the the nature of it but the stadiums are being completed i was in lucille which is the eighty thousand seat stadium that will host the opening game in the final it's still a building site at the moment but obviously what makes it easier in qatar is the fact that they've built the city from scratch you're not dealing with some of the legacy issues you get in terms of construction sites in older cities um, and there are still uh, one, three years to go to complete it. And they've also got the metro route system in place, and that is uh, being completed. And I've experienced the air conditioning in um, one of the stadiums away from Khalifa, which was used to athletics. That's at Al Janoun. So, yeah, they can cool the stadium. And obviously, all the questions then are about is it environmentally friendly? The fact they're basically pumping a load of cold air into hot air some of the working conditions that obviously have to be endured yeah. um, while preparing the country for the World Cup, including one British worker who died on the site of the Khalifa Stadium with which an inquest back in England found there were some safety issues in, involved there. So you know, we looked, have looked at over the various rights issues, the welfare issues, plus their readiness to host the World Cup. And I, you know, I think they certainly are on track in terms of the preparation for, for, for bringing uh, the World Cup to them. Yeah, I mean, in terms of the... In terms of the workers' rights issues, this is something that has been ever-present in discussions around Qatar and its appropriateness as a, as a venue for, for the World Cup in particular, but for, for the rest of these major championships as well. Is there a sense that there has been progress in that respect, at least? Yeah, I mean, undoubtedly, the World Cup going to Qatar has changed and improved worker conditions, the right of workers, and awareness of the need to have better conditions in place. Some rights activists will argue, well, that shouldn't be a reason to give the um, competition of, to Qatar or any other country to start with. Some yeah. others will argue, actually, you should use the sport for social change, and that's something Seb Coe was arguing. He used this uh, phrase the other day, we're not competitors, we're collaborators. Um, but... The World Cup going to Qatar has also led to FIFA introducing new human rights policy and standards required of host countries, so they have to meet standards. So we saw that with the 2026 process with um, the North American and Morocco bid having to produce these human rights uh, risk assessments to show FIFA what the risks were. So undoubtedly, the World Cup going to Qatar has made sporting events and competition organisers sit up like FIFA and be aware of the human rights risks involved. Qatar still has some way to go to meet the uh, reforms and introduce the reforms that are called for by all activists. But actually, if you look at the most recent amnesty report, there's quite a bit that focused on other issues related to it, but around payment of wages and making sure employers are actually um, fulfilling their contractual obligations um, to their staff. Uh, so, yeah, yeah it's, a, it's, a, it's a detailed one. And um, as 
you know, the likes of Amnesty State, that, that they've said that, well, for all the reforms introduced, there is still a stain on the athletics championships. And that's what perhaps we'll see in 2022, that while Qatar will be able to talk about the advances and the changes that have been introduced, there'll still be this focus on what has gone before. Although there's also some inaccurate numbers that are around that have spread as well, which obviously the Qataris will rail against some estimates that of things like death tolls, which were estimates and not actual numbers, but have been um, often characterised as the actual numbers of fatalities on work sites. Yeah, yeah, more, more, uh, more to come in from that story, no doubt. Let's just finish on World Athletics and and um, and the week that it's had. Obviously, we've seen the emergence of some new stars, the likes of Dina Asher Smith from a UK perspective, but you know some very competitive events going on throughout the championships. But at the same time, there's been the spectre of Alberto Salazar. And you know, familiar wider questions about athletics relevance and its uh, its integrity. Where where does where does the sport go from here? Is it is there a feeling of of anything having changed over the last week? Has it just been a case of kind of refocusing on on some of the challenges that it already had? Yeah, I mean, obviously, when Sepp was first elected, I to black president in twenty fifteen. There were many questions over just how determined he was to address the Russian doping issue because investigations perhaps questioned his curiosity over what he knew and when he knew uh, back around 2014 under um, the DIAC regime at the IAAF. But then actually he went further than other sports and particularly the IOC in adopting a very firm position advocating Russia to be banned from the IAAF, which still meant in Doha there were only Russians competing as neutrals under the IAAF flag. So he was re-elected um, a couple of weeks ago, having sort of seemingly turned around a lot of the negativity around uh, his leadership, particularly in the strong line on Russia. But then we see the Salazar case and some of his messaging perhaps has not been what you know, many would like to hear. I mean, particularly when I asked him about the, the, the Nike involvement mm. in the investigation, the CEO talking to Salazar about um, various um, tests with testosterone gels. And Sepico said to me, he only read the executive summary, not the full report. The question is, after almost a week, should he have read the full report, given the impact it has on the sport? And it's answers like that, which remind people of some of his responses around the first um, allegations around the Russian doping scandal, where he... Um, said about not opening emails, not reading things, etc. And I think perhaps he was, um, you know, he, he, he could have been more um, forceful and he could have actually read the report, which many would be surprised by. He only read the exact summary. Yes, he had a championship to organise, but he certainly had enough time to be posting um, Instagram videos uh, in the gym. <laughs> yeah, and is there not just on the doping issue, but commercially as well, and Kind of reforming athletics as a as a kind of spectator proposition. Is there an appetite for change? Do you, do you feel? I mean, you speak to John Ridgeon, who's obviously now CEO of uh, what is World Athletics, and he really is um, looking at changes. He's embracing those who sort of suggest and point the need to change. You speak anecdotally to Qataris who perhaps aren't used to going to um, athletic meets, and perhaps the show itself in the venue is hard to follow. That's what I would hear, you know, particularly for field events. They're, they're not used to going to the meets. You know, 
exactly what they're looking at, when they're looking at a particular area, who they're looking at. Um, you know, the announcements can be hard to hear. Perhaps there needs to be a bit more um, explanation over just who the athletes are competing in, in, in front of them. But at the same time, the IWF did introduce some innovations, like the light shows before big uh, events each evening with the names of athletes on the track and pictures projected on. So certainly producing all the spectacle, which seemed to wow the crowd uh, each time. They also used new camera angles like the block cams, which uh, um, did meet some criticism from particularly the German Federation, which complained about the intrusive nature of the shots, which I did dub in one piece, the crotch cam. Uh, but yeah, at least we are looking to sort of um, shape that up. And then sometimes the in-stadium show could sound a bit English, quite frankly, um, for a Qatari audience, whether that's the music or indeed the, some of the the conversational elements, uh, even down to sort of saying it's Saturday night. And actually, obviously, Saturday night is very different in Qatar. It's the eve before the start of the work. Mm -hmm. That's quite granular, as said. I would, would probably say himself. But yes, there's many things I think they need to look at innovating in terms of the actual in-stadium um, experience. It's a question of how uh, things like um, dance cam uh, are. And they seem, maybe, maybe they seem quite dated to some people. <laughs> Yeah. All right. Thanks very much for your time, Rob. Good to join you. Enjoying this Sports Pro podcast? Well, we're also the sports industry leader in print, digital, and events. Head to sportspromedia.com for the latest features, news, and interviews from the business of sport. Help yourself to a subscription to our acclaimed magazine and find out about our unmissable conferences before anyone else. Get inside the industry with Sports Pro. Welcome back to the Sports Pro Podcast. Uh, thanks again to Rob Harris for his time. A note to anyone who is enjoying the pod, and I know there are more and more of you every week, to please subscribe, share, and if you're in a praising mood, uh, post a review on iTunes or your preferred channel. All of that is going to help us get the word out. We're very keen to take the podcast onto another level in the next couple of months, and it would be great if you can help us to accomplish that. Okay, it has been a very big year indeed for women's sport from the FIFA Women's World Cup on down. Uh, but how do you sustain success beyond the big moments and how do you lay the foundations for a more gender equal future? Well, one woman who's been confronting those challenges for some time is Claire Connor. Uh, she's a former England women's cricket captain and she's now the managing director for women's cricket at the England and Wales Cricket Board. Uh, a couple of years ago, Claire watched on as England beat India in the Women's World Cup final in front of a sold-out crowd at Lourdes, creating a moment of national excitement around a women's team uh, with all the media attention and chatter that goes with that. But what next? The authorities in England and beyond are back to the everyday challenges of visibility and viability and are bringing more women and young girls into the sport. Well, this week, the ECB launched a new action plan that's backed by an initial £20 million of investment over the next two years to transform women's and girls' cricket in England and Wales. Uh, I went to Lords last week to talk to Claire about those plans and about the task ahead for women's sport, particularly women's team sport, uh, as it builds on momentum and goodwill to create lasting change. That's where I'm going to leave you for this week, so I'll thank you now for listening. We pick up with Claire discussing that incredible moment in London uh, back in 2017, and the return to reality and hard work that followed.
we won that World Cup, you know, it was such a completely magical, a magical day, firstly, um, you know, to see Lords fall. That was a real significant moment because um, it gives you real confidence, I think, that um, you're, the sport that you're working in, you know, is um, there's, a, there's a real appetite for it and an audience who want to see it. And that, that, was, that was lovely. Um, when we won, you know, when we won and I did some interviews in the ensuing few days, the, the stock line that journalists used was, you know, Claire, you must be delighted, you know, this will be a watershed moment for the women's game. And my answer to that was, yes, of course, just this is just the most, you know, we're going to really revel in how, revel in how this feels for a, for a little while. But actually, it'll be, we'll, it, we'll only know if it's been a watershed moment when we look back in a couple of years, mm. and that's now, now, um, to see what what we're doing about winning a World Cup and yeah. what, what the game looks like and what, what sort of health it's in and what we are able to do with that kind of success on a world stage to take the women's game to the next level, which is why I suppose when I, when I do look back, it's actually quite nice to do that. I haven't, haven't thought a bit of it like that. It's really, it feels really good to be in the position that we're in and I feel very fortunate that we've secured significant investment um, mm. for the next period of our, for the period of Inspiring Generations, which is our new strategy that starts next year. The board have approved 20 million pounds over the first two years of that strategy into my area to transform women's and girls cricket um, with an ambition to invest 50 million pounds over the five year period of the strategy. So, um, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's an exciting time for us. Um, we've got a big launch, public launch of that strategy. It's the product of 18 months work, I suppose, of consultation with the game, a lot of work internally, looking at other sports, um, being really encouraged and motivated by the whole women in sport agenda mm. as well, the wider movement, <coughs> if you like, of, of women in sport. And so we're ready, you know, we're ready to, to use that investment wisely, I think. We've got a plan that will join up, which, which will look at our pathway much more holistically than we've ever been able to do before. Mm. So whether you're a young girl aged five picking up a bat in our All-Stars programme, which is for boys and girls aged five to eight, or whether you're a girl who's left that program and wants to play at secondary school, uh, we've got a plan um, that'll be developed for that uh, that program. And then the club game, obviously, having welcoming clubs um, that women and girls can go to um, with with real support there, good coaching, uh, the right formats being played so that uh, we retain as many women and girls in the game as we can. And then moving into the kind of pathway and performance end, we're going to be investing heavily in localised talent programmes within counties for girls aged 11 to 17. Mm. And then I suppose the shiny, the shiny bit on top, you know, the cherry on the, the cherry on top of the cake is the, we'll be awarding um, around 40 new professional con domestic contracts to women from next year, which will be in addition to our centrally contracted group of, of England players. Yeah. And I think, you know, you have to, you have to try and do all of those things and we're really lucky that we have got the investment and support of the board and the game to do that now. It's all very well, you know, just investing in central contracts or just introducing a new competition at semi-pro level, which we've been able to do with, you know, lovely results with the Kia Super League over the last four years. But actually now being able to join it all up and yeah. be able to tell a, a hopefully a compelling story that a woman or a girl can find her place in the game yeah. um, is, is 
is is a is a really lovely place to be. Yeah. So obviously, lots of people involved in. Um, I'm really, really trying not to use the word stakeholders, but lots yeah, of stakeholders involved in, yeah. in that kind of a framework. Has anything like this really existed before, and and should it have done? I mean, is this is this what's been missing? The kind of the networking of the women's game because you have these high-profile successes, but then you also have, you know, quiet times who are really or, struggling as well yeah. to kind of uh, to to find their way through the game because obviously the money might be in this part, but it might not be in this part and, and so on. Exactly, and I think it's a, it's a really good question. And, I, you know, you're spot on. We just haven't had the moment in time, I suppose, or the level of uh, the increased investment to be able to do this before. I think you can always look at things and say, shouldn't this have happened sooner? Mm. Um, and, and I suppose that reflects the fact that it's a good thing that we're about to do and a, a, a bold thing and... Um, you know, a, a plan that will hopefully continue to, to grow and, well, actually we're saying the, the, the verb that we're using is transform the game for women and girls in cricket. So, um, yeah, it is, you know, with our new broadcast deal that, that runs from 2020 to 2024, we have significant increased investment to be able to do this and to be able to do it um, from top to bottom or bottom to top, however you look at it, yeah. um, and hopefully join it up in a really, a really coherent way. Um, and uh, you know, like I said earlier, we have done some good things in recent years around central contracts, Kia Super League. Um, you know, the number of girls since winning the World Cup, the number of girls taking part in All Stars has grown to nearly twenty-five percent of the overall number. There's no reason why that number can't be 50%. Mm. Um, you know, we're talking about attracting boys and girls age five, you know, before any kind of societal stereotypes have, have got into their, have got into them. And, and, and so that's one of our ambitions is to, is to try to have a 50-50 split of boys and girls in yeah. all stars. Yeah. I mean, obviously there's a, a long existing network around the men's game of, of clubs and the county system and everything else. Was that suitable for growing the women's game? Was that ever going to be a way of doing it, or did you have to have something? Yeah, so again, another brilliant question because our game is set up in the club world and in the world of certainly the first class counties, professional men's cricket, which is, you know, a lot of which is around playing four day cricket to from which you select your England men's Mm. test side. That the infrastructures there are have been set up to deliver cricket to men and boys, really. And so you're spot on. We've needed to to look at that with really fresh eyes. And we'll be making some key changes to that infrastructure for the, in terms of this strategy. So one of which will be that with our new professional domestic structure, um, or what will become, in time, a fully professional domestic structure for women, uh, which starts with the awarding of these 40 domestic contracts, we are still working with all of the counties, first-class counties and national counties, to build that structure. But it won't be a county model, so it'll be a regional model. So we'll have eight teams in that competition, playing 50 over and T20 cricket, which are our main international formats uh, in the women's game. And those eight regions will include every single county, first-class or national county. So that's been a huge amount of... Um, that's required I don't know how many meetings and calls and um, 
conversations to bring that to life mm. because it's that's cricket operating in a very different way from the current men's um, way of doing things or the way of the way that the men's game operates. Um, and so we'll have eight regions. Each of those regions will be headed up by a, a, a lead, a regional lead or a regional host through which our funding will flow into the region. Um, and that regional lead or regional host will be the employer within each region of many new roles, including regional directors of women's cricket, head coaches, science and medicine roles, talent managers, the five professional players in each region, which is how we get to our number of our, our total of 40 and so on. Um, so we're building a very new regional infrastructure for mm -hmm. our uh, for our domestic game. So that's that's one example of how this plan has looked at where the women's game is different, where the talent pool is different, what the why the requirements are different, um, and we've come up with a different model. Yeah, um, on the field this summer you played Australia, who you've beaten in the past. You personally have beaten in the past in, in the women's Ashes series, and there was a bigger gap this summer than I think uh, some people had hoped for. Obviously, that's in part a reflection of some of the changes that they've made to their infrastructure. Had you, is, it, is that something that you'd anticipated? And is there something in their model that you hope to be able to replicate? Or is it a case of kind of saying, well, we need to develop our own in our own way? Mm. So at the first bit of your question, I think we always knew that there could be that bigger gap. I think Australia's moment, if you like, for, you know, investing more resource, human resource and financial resource into domestic women's cricket. That moment came several years ago, mm. five years ago, probably. And they um, have more professional players. Basically. So they've got, yeah, they've got roughly 100 professional players compared to our current 22. And, and what we know is that when you invest like that, that you don't you don't see the results the next day, yeah. but you see the results in three, four, five years time. And that's what we saw this summer. We saw the fruits of that investment for them um, with some brilliant individual and team performances that, you know, made... I just, I, I suppose how I felt about that Ashes defeat was, you know, thank goodness we've got a plan. Mm. Um, and a plan that we know will, you know, will, will if we deliver it well, um, it will close that gap. Mm. Um, we will have more domestic players who are paid to play. We will have more year-round coaching programs, training programs. We will have more year-round science and medicine support. We will have a pathway feeding into that structure that is fit for purpose. So I suppose that's that's how I'd answer the, the, the kind of the ashes gap question. Uh, the second bit was, do we, will we do it differently? I think what well, you've, you've said there, one of the things that's the same is we need to increase the number of players who are paid to play and who can therefore focus on the game on a year-round basis without other, you know, other commitments and uh, strains financially. And you know, we in terms of the model we've created, it's 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 different from theirs. Um, but I think one of you know one of the sim similarities, I suppose, is recognizing that you need a best v best competition. You need as as many of your best players playing against each other and against the world's best as often as possible. Yeah. Um, the hundred is obviously is new and different. First time that's been tried uh, anywhere in the world, so that's certainly nothing that we've we've taken from Australia. But you know, I don't think there's anything wrong in in looking looking on at the best in the world and saying, okay, which bits of that 
do we need and would fit with our game and which bits need to be different yeah so hopefully we've done that yeah let's let's talk about the hundred but first of all let's talk about the competition that it's replaced yes. um, I mean you took the decision in introducing introducing it in the women's game next year that you were going to discontinue the Kia Super League which is only is it four years um, that that was running for I mean that was a really hard decision yeah well, I was going to say what precipitated that decision because you know in the in in the men's game there's been a change to the 50 over competition but basically everything that existed before still exists yes the blast that's a very crowded calendar yeah. um whereas for, for women's players there's not perhaps as many opportunities to compete on on that stage um what why did you feel that the super league had to had to go well I mean, firstly, it was a really difficult decision because we're very, we're really proud of what the Kia Super League has done and what it's achieved, which, as you say, you know, we did build from scratch. Um, again, with kind of different ways of working across our six teams. Um, the purpose of the Kia Super League was twofold, really. It was one to bridge the gap between women's county cricket and England mm. international game, and it was to have a product. Don't really like that word, but a product that could be played on television of a high standard that would attract the world's best female overseas players um, and that we could start to really make a noise about in terms of some women's domestic cricket that we hadn't had that opportunity before. And really the, the objectives of the 100 now are around best v best profile, um, an engaging and exciting format that will get great airtime and, and coverage. And, I, and so the objectives of the 100 really, um, the Kia Super League, you, you couldn't have both. Mm. Um, you couldn't have a six-team Kia Super League competition at T in playing T20 cricket and an eight-team 100. You know, we wouldn't, we wouldn't get, for example, we, I don't think had we done that, we would have got any broadcast coverage for the yeah. Kia Super League. So we, we took that decision. The other key, the other attractive um, aspect of being part of the 100 is this very, very unique opportunity in sport to build a men's and women's competition from the outset alongside each other. Mm. And to, you know, one of our ambitions within Inspiring Generations is to normalise cricket for women and girls and to give every, every girl the chance to say cricket is a game for me. So to be able to have eight men's and women's teams side by side in the same kit under the same team name. Um, with lots of you know like exciting content and engagement for for boys and girls and men and women, we thought that was a really powerful statement around showing that women and girls are um, you know uh, uh, we, that we're we're working towards that gender balanced sport. Yeah, just on the hundred. I mean, I, I read a rumor by the way that this was your idea. In the, yeah, I've read that rumour too. Yeah, it was in the cricketer, wasn't it? My dad said to me, he said, was it, he was reading it and he said, was it your idea? It wasn't my idea. It wasn't clear no. to what extent it's your No, idea, it was, firstly, it wasn't my idea. <laughs> I think what where that's come from was that in the very early days of, um, of exploring it, we set up a kind of high-performance steering group, which I chaired right. um, for the men's and women's game. I didn't just chair it for the women's game. Uh, and it was just a two-day workshop where we talked about playing conditions and gimmicky ideas, um, which most of which were, were discounted. But we just we brought a lot of people together from the men's and women's high-performance game to say, okay, what could this be? How many balls in one go? Change of ends? You know, scoring zones? All sorts mm. of things. 
countdown clocks and everything. Um, and so I think that's where that came from, that yeah. my name was attached to that steering yeah. group. Yeah, but it's, yeah. it's um, I mean, we've talked, I think it's been, you know, a lot of talk has been uh, had about it as the broad concept and it being tailored for digital audiences and for a BBC primetime audience and, and all of that kind of stuff. What specifically are some of the advantages that, or some of the opportunities, what specifically are some of the opportunities that it presents to the women's game beyond that kind of parity thing? What, what are um, some of the ways in which you can tap into the media ecosystem that perhaps you haven't been able to before? Yeah, good question. I, I think, I, I think. well, if I work on the basis that this year the Kia Super League in, in a five-week competition window had 93 million engagements, digital engagements, that number, I found that overwhelming. Um, I think that would be in part due to the involvement of Indian players. Mm. It's hard to know what the kind of the, the media reach or the advantages will be, but I mean, it Firstly, we've, obviously, we've got coverage from both Sky and BBC. And I think, you know, today, Joss Butler and Kate Cross, two of our players, are up um, doing the rounds of various media with media folk up at Salford at the BBC. And I think um, what the BBC obviously brings is, is, is a reach that is well mm. beyond, you know, the sports bubble. Um, so, you know, things like CBBS and other, other platforms where we can really take... Uh, cricket to a hopefully younger, more diverse audience. Um, so that you know that that has to be a positive. Yeah. Um, I think the you know aside from 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 reach and engagement, you know it's well. I mean, I suppose the other thing about the competition is that whilst the men's hundred uh, will be played in just just in the eight big stadia, the women's competition will be played across all 18 first-class counties. Yeah. So I think that's a real benefit because I think it takes... So take my... Where I live, as for example, I live in Sussex. Uh, our men's team in the 100, the Southern Brave, will play at the Aegeus Bowl. Um, and the women's team will play one double header there, but the rest of their games will be played at Hove. Mm. So I think we'll see that that is a real benefit, that it's the competition is being spread more widely, more regionally, in line with the rest of our plans around our domestic game yeah. to be a regional structure. Um, so, so I think we'll see some, some really good benefits from that. Um, and... I mean, the other thing will be is, is, is money. You know, the salaries in the women's competition in the 100, they're not the same as the men. I think that's a given. I don't think anyone would expect that to be the case. Think, sorry, just to interject, but do you think that that's almost help, helpful in some ways because it sets the terms of, okay, here's where we are, here's where the men's team are? Is it, does it set... What, in terms of, of salaries or Yeah, the or fact venues? that the salaries are... Sorry, not the no. fact the salaries are different. Yeah. The fact that the salaries are published... Do you think that's helpful in setting um, the terms of the debate almost? I don't know really whether I think it's helpful, the fact that they're all in the public domain. I think it leads to some interesting debate. I think, um, I think, you know, on the one hand, you could say that given that we only introduced central contracts for women five years ago, for the England women's squad five years ago, the fact that five years on we're seeing significant investment into domestic salaries for women is is brilliant and we've moved at a good pace. You always, you know, you, crikey, you know, I'm not going to argue with everyone who says, you know, is it, it's that there's too big a gap. I mean, you always want, you yeah. want to close that gap and as an organisation we want to close that gap. 
goes without saying across all gender pay um, conversations. But you have to you have to be realistic, and mm. you have to you can't go from fi- first gear to fifth gear in you know overnight. So I think the salaries are good. We've benchmarked them across football, women's football. We've benchmarked them across um, other uh, in, uh, sports in other countries. So for example, the women's big bash, um, and they're 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 competitive. You know, good salaries. The top players, the top players in the women's competition for four to five weeks work will earn, you know, £15,000. Yeah. Um, and so I think maybe it is good that the, 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 the numbers are out there because it gives you a start point and it yeah. says, okay, this is our commitment. In addition to those salaries, we, those when you consider the other 40 domestic game salaries that will be contracts that will be available, then you'll talk, you know, take a player like Sophia Dunkley, you know, she, she'll end up, even if she's not centrally contracted, next year she'll play in our new domestic structure she'll play in the hundred and she'll earn a really good salary from playing cricket yeah yeah because i mean the the you know the the example that i suppose the most prominent example of that kind of discussion would be what happens in grand slam tennis a few yes. years ago yeah. um and prior to that that launched the wta yes um and the fact that all of that information was public and it, yeah. you know yeah meant that it was a, a conversation a that could be yeah, yeah. carried out in the public yes, and yeah reference, yeah. reference points, points. yeah um, and I agree with that. And I think, you know, tennis has obviously led the way in terms of the gender pay progress. Um, and, and it, you know, it provides kind of inspiration and, and it's, it's where we all want to get to. Um, I think women's team sports have slightly different challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but I, I'm, I'm pleased with the progress. You know, I'm not, we're not complacent. We know we've got to keep closing the gap and that will happen. I have no doubt if you look back over the last five years and think forward to the next five years I have no no doubt that that gap will continue to close yeah just talking about the the progress something that you know we wanted to clarify before we started was what your job title is these days because it's changed (laughs) you know half a dozen times probably in in the time that you've been at the ECB while at the same time you've been the figurehead um, for women's cricket administration in, in this country what what does that reflect do you think I think it reflects. So I think, yes, it has changed a few times. Um, most of the time I've been at the ECB, my focus has been on England women's cricket um, and, you know, building that system, bringing in professional contracts, the infrastructure that sits within an international setup that's largely based up at Loughborough, our National Performance Centre, Science and Medicine, Specialist Coaching, our Future Tours programme. And I work closely with with the ICC, have worked closely with the ICC in in that role. My role now is, so it changed at the start of this year in line with um, our direction of travel with Inspiring Generations and the Transform Women's and Girls Cricket ambition. Um, So my role now is Managing Director of Women's Cricket, so it's much broader. Mm. Um, So... um, it's it's busy. It's 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 given me a, a, re, a really lovely uh, sort of fresh injection of um, not that I was uh, not that I was stale or anything, but it, it's certainly given me um, a new lens um, when I, when I come to work because it, it's actually once you, if you've got a bit of money and you've got some decent players and you've got the support of the organisation. Doing the international bit isn't you. Uh, you can't control whether the team yeah. win or lose. You can't. We couldn't control whether Heather lifted that trophy <laughs> or that Anya would race through the Indian batting lineup that day a couple of years ago. But actually, getting the high performance 
uh, environment right is, is fairly straightforward. There are some key ingredients and you, you, know, you, you, you put them together and, and you, you hope that the team delivers some magical moments. The role now is is much much different from you know different from that. It's much more about kind of tackling, I suppose, some of the barriers that have present, prevented more women and girls from being involved in the game. It's a, you know, it's given me a, a much more kind of holistic lens on what some of those challenges are and how and the impo- and the real importance of now that we've got a you know again not complacent about where we are with England by any stretch you know we're in the throes of recruiting a new England women's head coach and some other roles in that system next year but there's you, you've got to have a system that can get players into mm. that environment and it's got to be as inclusive as possible um, so whether you're a girl in Wiltshire or Warwickshire or Yorkshire or Cornwall you know it shouldn't be a postcode lottery the game should be providing um, the opportunities for all girls to take their first steps into the game, and and that's what's really driving me now. Yeah, because I mean, you you've come literally personally from the era of kind of hoop skirts and the right. rest of it as a player. Um, you know, is that the seriousness with which some of these things are taken? That is that a resource thing? Is that a is that a mindset thing? How how has that changed in those kind of twenty twenty five years? Um, I think it's lots of things. I think it is about investment but it's about choices and you know organizations make choices don't they on where to spend whether they've got lots of money or a little money they have to make choices and I think the great thing now is that because I think because as well it's also about the wider what's happening around you it's about the other influences and the the other kind of things that are at play are in society or in the the industry in which you're in which for me is sport and um you know, when everything clicks and aligns and you've got investment and you've got good choices being made and you've got an independent board, um, which we've had now for the last probably 18 months to two years, um, and you've got an organisation that's all pulling in that, that direction of the new strategy, which is to inspire a generation to say cricket is a game for me, not just a generation of boys, but a generation um, then, then you're in a good place because everything aligns, and all of the critical factors um, can make something possible. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're coming. You, you come now to a point where you have Ishigua. We understand, you know, former England international is going to be the face of cricket on the BBC. In football, you have Alex Scott, who's a very prominent. Um, anchor as well, and 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 you've got obviously in, in athletics as we've seen on the BBC this week a lot of um, uh, a lot of female talent involved in, in presenting that how but th- at the same time there are structural issues in the way that women's sports presented in the media in, in that there's not as much of it <laughs> so how do you go about driving that kind of change is that something that's within your control do you feel um, I think a bit of it's in in my control or you know my equivalent in other sports um, I think you have to give content and interesting stories and schedules and schedules, international schedules with meaning and context, which we've done over the last, since 2013, when the ICC introduced the Women's Championship, which was around giving every ODI, a one day international series, context on the journey, on the route to the World Cup and World Cup qualification. 
50 over World Cup. So I think you have to be able to de deliver that to the broadcasters and media. You have to be able to tell a good story about, we're talking here about the top end, aren't we, from the, your mm. question. We're not talking about the grassroots stuff. So you have, you have to be able to, I think, have good content, a schedule with context and meaning that people can, uh, that, that's got in and with enough frequency. Yeah. I think some, you know, we've, we've been a uh, victim in the past to not having enough cricket, not having enough to talk about, not people not knowing when England are playing next yeah. or not having enough, you know, we're getting better at advanced ticket sales and, um, you know, trying to get all of our competitions, men's and women's competitions aligned so that we can have, you know, universal on sale yeah. ticket moments, working more closely with venues on putting on a really good, a really good experience for people who come and watch. So I think there are things we can do, but no, it can't just be all driven by the national governing bodies or by the sports. Yeah. You know, there is a responsibility, I think, on on broadcasters and media to play their part in this and yeah. to to be part of that wider ambition, which is about, you know, let's normalise sport for women and girls and men and boys. You know, I'm not just saying that women and girls want to watch women's sport. Actually, we know that a lot of our a lot of our fans are are men and yeah. so it's about catering to all of that I mean it comes back to the the challenge that we talked about in a slightly different context at the start which is you know you had your champagne moment that was front page mm. newspaper moment as well and and it's kind of how you follow that up mm. over the, over the, yeah and, and that's, that's not just an issue that you have that's an issue that the US women's national team have in you know after mm. their World Cup wins and uh, and so on I mean does it is it I suppose you just kind of keep do you keep pushing that boulder up the hill kind of thing? To, well, I, it, I don't so. kind of see it like that. I think, you know, we're, we're in a... We're, things are getting better all the time. You know, I don't ever look at it as a an uphill struggle. I never have done. I think it's about, you know, you, you, you sometimes take small steps and sometimes you take some massive steps. And as long as you are kind of moving forwards and you can see see what's possible, um, that's kind of how I, I look at it. And, and what's ahead of us here with this you know, investment and the transform women's and girls strategy over the next five years is we've got an, an amazing opportunity at every level of the game of our sport to um, provide women and girls with something better. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, it's, it's you know, again, incumbent on, on, on me and my team and others across the, the network or the stakeholder, um, the stakeholders across the game to make the most of that. Yeah. Um, we've got a couple of minutes left, just very quickly I wanted to address obviously there's a world t20 next year for women which precedes the men's by a few months um, but how's how's the international game going to develop is it going to be radically different do you think is it going to come from different centers potentially um, that's a good question I think one thing I haven't mentioned um, in, which kind of is uh, answers that which is also part of this next you know our opportunity in the next five years is the inclusion of women's cricket in the Commonwealth Games mm -hmm. So from in 2022, um, T20 women's cricket will be in the Commonwealth Games here in Birmingham. So in our time zone, in our country, in a, a very kind of multicultural and cricket mad city in the middle of the country. So that's that's a brilliant opportunity that we must seize and make sure that there's that that's a real platform for growth. The rest of the international schedule, I mean, we've got, as you say, we've got a T20 World Cup next February, March. Cricket Australia have um, been very bold, saying that they will fill the MCG for the final on International Women's Day on March the 8th. Um, so that could be something amazing to be part of if we're in that final. Um, and then the following year, we'll go to New Zealand to defend our 50-over World Cup 
title. Um, lots of bilateral cricket in between. We're playing New Zealand and India next summer, either side of the 100. Um, I don't think the international game will be radically different for women. I think, you know, it will be a, a constant balance of 50 over in T20 cricket. Mm. So just in terms of where, uh, where the sport is going to develop, obviously England, India, Australia are already establishing themselves as, as the kind of the powerhouses in, in the women's game as they are in the men's. But, you know, you, you think at this point in its development, it's still going to come out of those centres where the, the game is already strong? Um, I think as opposed I to... think it will for a while. I think um, we're seeing some interesting results in, you know, so anyone who plays T20 now can have, in, has in, those are internationally ranked, uh, there are international rankings for those teams. And um, so the likes of Thailand at the recent T20 Women's World Cup qualifier up in Scotland. Uh, Thailand were very successful in that. So, so that, you know, we're seeing breakthroughs. So Thailand, Papua New Guinea, uh, China and America, I'm sure over mm -hmm. the next few years will be forces to be reckoned with. Now, whether, whether they kind of just break into the sort of top 10, top 12 and, and hang around there for a number of years or whether they then make that change to start challenging England, Australia, India, New Zealand, etc. We'll have to see, but you know, we've ident at, an, at an ICC level, we've identified T20 as the growth format. So that's the format that the the up and coming associate nations will be playing most mm. of. They won't play that much 50 over cricket. So I would imagine you'd see 50 over cricket remaining very much the domain of the, if you like, the full members in cricket. Um, but I think 2020 cricket is where we could see some surprises and some real. Uh, some real growth. Let's take it back to the start. And just thinking about your when when you began in the game. If, if you were to put yourself in the position of a, a young girl, five or six, or slightly older, um, beginning in the game, now, how would you want their experience to be different? Well, that's a great question. I mean, first of all, I would say that I was very lucky in the, uh, my journey through the game as a player, a little girl, you know, following my dad around our cricket club as a toddler. You know, all my experiences up to a certain age were in men's and boys cricket, but I was lucky they were there for me and I was, in, I was allowed to play, if you like. Um, the system now, that, that five or six-year-old girl now, the difference is that the game is more set up for her. Um, she has got... A range of opportunities. She doesn't need to rely on um, being allowed to play in a boys' team or a men's team or in, in, at a school or a club. Um, she should be able to. She should have a greater awareness now that that girls' cricket is something to be, you know, to be really enjoyed and that would give her a great, some great experiences as a as a young woman. Um, and she should have that visibility that I didn't have the, the, as a young, when I played, you know, all my role models were men. Mm. My role models were Steve Waugh, Ian Botham. And now a five or six year old girl should be able to see some really fantastic female role models that she can look to and critically see a way to hopefully reaching that level if she wants to. Mm. Okay. Thanks very much, Claire. Thank you.